This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of National Security Magazine. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and we are joined today by an old friend of Deep State Radio, Colin Call, who is co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation uh, at uh, Stanford University and is the inaugural Stephen C. Hazy Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute of, for International Studies there. Um, and uh, you may recall that Khan was the Deputy Assistant to the President and National Security Advisor uh, to uh, Vice President Biden. And prior to that, he was uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Middle East at the Pentagon. Uh, so welcome. Glad, glad you could join us. Great to be with you, David. Uh, as we... Uh, uh, you know, follow the news uh, closely. I've noticed you've moved further and further away from Washington, and I, I want to know what it is that you knew that we didn't know. That you know, I mean, it seems very clever. But are you planning to cross the Pacific at any time? <laughs> I mean, you know, ask me again in 2021. Um, I may have a particular view on that. Uh, no, I think a lot, like a lot of uh, veterans of the Obama administration. Uh, 2017, to say the least, was a psychologically difficult year. Uh, it was, I think, a psychologically difficult year for, for many Americans uh, who were unhappy with the way that the election turned out. But for those of, of us who worked on national security issues up until the end, it, it was, I think, uh, uh, quite difficult. And being in D.C. was not was not the uh, it was not the easiest place to be. So when I when I had an opportunity to uh, come back to the Bay Area where I grew up and to be at a, such a great university like Stanford, I jumped at it. No, it's it's definitely uh, it's uh, definitely a good job, um, and I know that you come at it from uh, 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 a really kind of enlightened perspective. I think, as I saw in your bio, I didn't really notice this before, although we've known each other for some time. That you went to both the University of Michigan, where my wife went, and to Columbia, where I went, and both of my wife and I would have chosen to go to Stanford. Um, uh, had we been smarter back in the day, uh, yeah, I didn't get in. I didn't get into Stanford either as an undergraduate or a graduate student. So I was just holding out for them to pay me. <laughs> smart, very, very, very smart. <laughs> um, uh, so, so the the other night, the president gave uh, his State of the Union address, and most of it was what you would expect was kind of bloviation and bad teleprompter reading. Uh, but there was some considerable amount of foreign policy uh, talk within it, uh, whether it was, you know, um, uh, patting himself on the back for pulling out of the INF treaty uh, or setting the stage for um, uh, further pullouts from the, the Middle East, uh, or perhaps some of us reading between the lines, guessing that there may be more to come in this department with regard to, say, U.S. troops in South Korea. Uh, it was all you know, unnerving to those of us who follow uh, foreign policy, I think. And I'm just wondering what your reaction was to the speech, first of all. Yeah, well, um, I, I'm just curious, is the speech still going? I mean, it was really long. Um, but uh, no, about an hour into an hour and 20 minute plus uh, speech, he talks about foreign policy. I think, you know, he tried to put the best gloss on on uh, on his foreign policy record. 
Um, I think the polls suggest that the overwhelming, you know, a pretty strong majority of, of the American people are not very happy with uh, Trump's foreign policy. Um, I think that if you look at uh, kind of the ratings um, of the United States across the world, and, and look, foreign policy and international relations is not a popularity contest, but it does actually matter how we're viewed around the world. And, um, you know, you have Gallup polling uh, uh, from the past year that shows that uh, respect in American leadership is, is now significantly declined across the world and that the United States is now tied with China in terms of, seen, of, of being seen as a, as a world leader. Uh, when you look at the Pew global research data, um, especially of, as it reflects opinions in, in other liberal democratic uh, states in, in Western Europe and in East Asia, um, uh, the views of the United States today compared to, say, the last year of the Obama administration, you have double-digit differences Some in some countries as much as you know, 30 35% reductions in how favorably the United States is viewed. And I think it reflects the fact that uh, Donald Trump came into office hoping to kind of overturn uh, the existing international order and America's role in that order. And, and to some degree, uh, he's been successful, at least in making a lot of America's traditional allies quite quite anxious. I mean, he bragged in the, in the, in the speech uh, the other night that uh, NATO countries had, had significantly increased their defense spending. I think some of that is a trend that, that uh, you know, reflects things that were, that were happening already. Uh, but that's come at the expense of essentially calling into question whether our NATO allies uh, can actually count on the United States uh, to defend them in the event of an emergency. So I think almost any fair analyst of, of the NATO alliance recognizes that it's weaker today uh, than before, largely because an alliance is only as strong as, as uh, allies' belief in one another. Uh, and I think you know, countries in Europe and elsewhere increasingly come to doubt whether the United States is willing to play uh, a positive role uh, in the world as opposed to kind of a narrowly uh, nationalistic one. Um, but anyway, I'd be happy to dive into any of the other issues he talked about in terms of you know, the INF or Afghanistan or North Korea or Iran or Syria or ISIS or all of the rest. I do think it is in general interesting, and I'm sure your readers will have taken note, that the State of the Union happened in relatively close proximity to uh, the intelligence community releasing its annual unclassified uh, document on worldwide threats. And if I, I suspect most of your listeners haven't haven't read the entire 42-page document, but uh, I have. And what struck me is that on issue after issue after issue, uh, the intelligence community essentially has concluded that what Trump is doing around the world is making us less safe. Um, and so I think you know, that's a problem. Yeah, no, I, I I read it and came to the conclusion that this was the most scathing indictment of the president to date. Uh, but the one thing we both know is that the president didn't read it. Uh, and, Correct. You know that you know not only does that you know carry with it the problems of him not having intellectual curiosity or seeking to learn from these things, but it also uh, underscores the problem of of the dysfunctional relationship between the president and the intelligence community actually between the president and national security professionals more broadly, the intelligence community, defense community, and the professional military, um, and the diplomatic community. Have you ever seen a period where it was as dysfunctional as it is now? You don't know, uh, No, I haven't. I mean, I, I think obviously there have been times in which uh, uh, the use of intelligence and the conclusions of the intelligence community and how that intersected with our political ecosystem has generated enormous controversies, um, whether it be, you know, the, the, the fact that the intelligence community didn't, didn't see 9-11 happening or the Bush administration didn't, didn't pick up uh, on the warnings that did, uh, that did exist. 
Um, obviously, there were the controversies over Iraq WMD um, and how that intelligence was was used uh, by the by the Bush administration. But what what's new in my lifetime, at least, is the degree to which a president has called into question in a very systematic way of the judgment of his uh, intelligence professionals and kind of denigrated them all as as the deep state that they don't know what they're doing. You know, shortly after. Uh, uh, Dan Coates and Gina Haspel, uh, uh, the director of national intelligence, director of CIA, testified before the Senate uh, not so long ago. The, 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 you know, to, to go through this worldwide threats uh, assessment, um, you know, Trump tweets that the, the intelligence community is naive and they need to go back to school and learn more about the about the world. And I mean, what is what is striking about the about the document? And I give Dan Coates a lot of credit here, as, the, as you know, he's a Trump appointee, he's director of national intelligence, but He's kind of committed to having the intelligence community continue to speak truth to power. And that document, I mean, let's just let's just go over a list of some of the things that it that it noted. You know, Trump claims that ISIS is essentially defeated in Iraq and Syria. The, the intelligence community believes that that is not true uh, and that lessening the counterterrorism pressure on them now, as Trump plans to do by pulling out of Syria, could actually lead them to regenerate. Trump claims that uh, Iran, uh, that, that pulling out of the Iran deal has made us safer and pushed uh, Iran further away uh, from a nuclear bomb. The intelligence community concludes the opposite, that the Iran deal is the only thing keeping uh, the Iranians back, uh, and that if Iran moves closer uh, to reconstituting its nuclear program, it will be because Trump pulled out of the uh, Iran deal, uh, not because of the Iran deal itself. Trump you know, believes that he and Kim Jong-un are in love and that uh, North Korea is committed to denuclearization. The intelligence community says that that's hogwash, that uh, that North Korea, having kind of perfected a strategic deterrent against the United States, uh, that Kim Jong-un is not going to give up those nuclear weapons, which are his ace in the hole uh, for regime survival. Uh, Trump likes to talk about how tough he's gotten on China with tariffs and everything else, but the intelligence community says that China is essentially eating our lunch geopolitically in Asia in no small part because Trump has weakened our alliances there and pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, And that's part of a broader judgment by the intelligence community that our alliances across the board are weaker now than they were before. And quite controversially, the intelligence community said a big reason for that are are the reaction of our allies to U.S. security and uh, trade policies under the under the under the Trump administration. And as those alliances get weaker, the intelligence community concluded not only is China eating our lunch in Asia, but but Russia feels emboldened uh, in Europe. So. It is what I've never seen is quite a is is not only the conflict that you see between Trump and the intelligence community, but how systematic uh, the the kind of rebuke of Trump's foreign policy is by the professionals who get paid uh, to assess these things for a living. Uh, Yeah, they're they're systematic. You know, it's there's a tendency among some of people who are colleagues of ours who are professional foreign policy and national security observers. To uh, when there is a new president, to want to talk about a doctrine or a strategy, you know, and people write, "This is the Trump doctrine" or whatever. And we, uh, by the way, on Deep State Radio, we've established a uh, a penalty jar. So you know, you have to put uh, five dollars into the jar every time you suggest there's a Trump doctrine, because there's nothing really typically that you know coherent about the actions of the president. They're very impulsive. But if there's one where there is a pattern, speaking, you know, picking up on your your use of the word systematic, um, that you could have discerned during the State of the Union, you can discern in the uh, the critique embedded in the intelligence community report. 
It's that the president is trying to dismantle the international order that has served the United States so well since the end of World War II. Uh, he's gone after the security alliances that were core to that order, NATO and and the alliances themselves with individual allies. He's gone after um, uh, uh, the international financial institutions that have been a core part of that. And in fact, has just now appointed a guy, David Malpass, uh, to be the new head of the World Bank or proposed him to be the new head of the World Bank, who is actually uh, spoken out as an opponent of the World Bank and of the IMF and his desire to see them rolled back and as that sees them as too much big international government. Uh, John Bolton, who had been the ambassador to the UN, has similar views towards the United Nations. Trump has expressed similar views towards the United Nations. Uh, Trump pulled out of TPP. Um, uh, he uh, uh, has, uh, you know, as we said, pulled out of the INF agreement. Uh, he pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement. He's he's sort of undercutting the the the, the legal frameworks and and treaties that have been part of this thing. Um, and and as he has done all of this, he has also embraced. Uh, the primary rival adversary that we've had during the course of that 75-year period, which is Russia, defending them, giving them benefits, um, protecting them, uh, even providing cover for their own attack into uh, U.S. democracy. Um, we get caught up a lot in the news and headlines and indictments and 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 sort of the scandalous side of this thing. But honestly. I never thought that I would see a moment where the United States would undertake such a sweeping reversal of everything it stood for for the past three quarters of a century and undertake the dismantling or attacking of so many of the institutions that we ourselves felt were essential to our well-being and that this is this is a very, very big deal that because of the sort of clamor of, of, of all the headlines of you know, each day, we may have missed. And I was just wondering what your view was on the big picture. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think I agree with the vast majority of, of what you said, David. I, I think whether we can speak of a, a Trump doctrine or not, I do actually think we sell the president a little short if we don't recognize that he does actually have some core beliefs. Uh, they may be misguided. They may not be terribly educated in the sense of being, you know, rooted in in a lot of expertise or or you know, reading or research or any of that. But he does have a set of core beliefs about the world that essentially go back 30 years uh, to the to the late 70s or early 1980s, and that are relatively unchanged. And uh, among those core beliefs, and and what distinguishes Trump from every other president uh, in the post World War II era is his general indictment of what, you know, the Washington establishment might call the liberal international order. Uh, that, you know, after, after uh, World War II, the United States helped build an architecture of, of institutions, organizations, agreements, alliances, forced deployments that kind of coalesce around a set of ideas and principles uh, uh, that we now call the liberal international order. And, 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 you know, American presidents since the Second World War have viewed U.S. leadership within that order as, as essential to protecting our security, our prosperity, and our way of life. And if anything, the United States has been accused around the world of that, of that order being rigged in favor of us. 
What differentiates Trump is that is his belief that that order doesn't make us richer or more secure and is actually rigged against us. And I think, you know, taking a taking a step back, the, if you imagine that the, the core components of that order are as follows, multilateral institutions and agreements, the collective security arrangements uh, uh, that we have through our alliance networks and the forward deployment of American troops uh, in Europe and Asia uh, and the Middle East to undergird those alliances, a commitment to democracy, human rights, and the rule of law as, as universal international uh, principles, not just American ones, uh, a commitment to free trade within the context of an open rule-based order, and a commitment over time to the freer flow of people uh, the ability of people uh, to to move around the globe. Um, Trump disagrees with all of those things. You know, he's replaced the commitment to multilateralism with a hyper unilateralism and nationalistic view. Uh, he treats our alliances like protection rackets, where if you don't pay up, like you do at Mar-a-Lago, you get thrown out uh, of the club, uh, rather than secret obligations that serve that serve our our interests. He has really no interest in democracy and human rights, except to, except as a way to poke U.S. adversaries like Iran. Uh, and Venezuela, but he looks the other way when it comes to Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or, or Erdogan or Duterte or you can, you know, Mohammed bin Salman in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, you can kind of go down the list. He obviously thinks that the free trading order is fundamentally rigged against uh, the United, United States, and he's obsessed with closing our borders by creating up a fake, a fake crisis on our southern border and proposing fake solutions in the form of a wall. So I think... Yes, there is no Trump doctrine per se, but he has a set of core beliefs, uh, and they're all, uh, uh, you know, antagonistic towards this liberal international order. Well, yeah, and not so good for American interests. I mean, all of them, the net consequence of every single thing you identified is weakening U.S. influence, weakening U.S. allies, weakening institutions that allow us to leverage our influence, and strengthening our enemies. Exactly. Other than that, uh, other than that, it's great. Yeah, um, let's let's go to a part of the world that you uh, worked on at the Pentagon, and then obviously subsequently when you were in the White House, um, and and that's the Middle East. There's been a a, a lot going on there. The president um, uh, uh, announcing a desire to pull out of Syria so abruptly that it led to the resignation of his Secretary of Defense, then reversing that, then reversing his reversal. Uh, talking now and looking like he's eager to get a deal done with the Taliban. Um, uh, I want to just take those two for a moment. I want to go on then to Yemen and Iran and and uh, Israel-Palestine. But just taking those two for a moment, um, getting out of Syria, avoiding being drawn into Syria, and uh, trying to get out of Afghanistan were big objectives of the Obama administration. How would you distinguish what Trump is doing from what an Obama administration circa or maybe Hillary Clinton administration circa 2019 would be doing. Yeah, look, I think that, I think that there can be honest disagreement about whether we should stay in Syria or leave uh, Syria. I think the, 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 the criticism that I think is impossible uh, to rebut is the fact that Trump clearly has no strategy and they have no process undergirding the strategy. So in the lead up to his announcement that we were leaving Syria, you had U.S. officials all over the place in terms of what our, object, or what our objectives were. So U.S. military officials and our special envoy at the time uh, for the counter-ISIS campaign, Brent McGurk, who also resigned uh, in protest after this uh, announcement, 
largely talked about the narrow goal of the sustainable defeat of the Islamic State, not just the defeat of, of the territorial caliphate, but to putting in place the political, economic, and, uh, and uh, other dimensions necessary uh, to keep ISIS down once, once their uh, territorial caliphate was, was, dis- was dismantled. Then you had other officials, of course, uh, uh, John Bolton, uh, most prominent among them, suggesting that American troops were going to be there forever, uh, or at least until the point in which there, were no, there was no longer a shred of Iranian influence left in Syria, which I think most Middle East analysts would tell you means essentially forever. Um, and then, you know, Trump basically, as you said, he talks to Erdogan on the phone. He appears to have been convinced to basically hand uh, uh, the parts of Syria that we've been um, employing our military in to the Turks. Uh, he then gets reversed on that. Uh, he then starts to warn the Turks not to come in, even after asking that, that they've come in. And now he's basically back to uh, us withdrawing our forces over the next few months. And I know that that's what our military um, is, is planning to do. Um, I think that the, the Obama administration, had there been a, you know, a third term, essentially would have wrestled with how to use what little leverage we had in Syria to set conditions for a withdrawal that would maximize the chances that uh, that uh, ISIS would remain uh, down and out and not and not bounce back. And what do I mean by that? The, the, the leverage that the Obama administration left Trump was as follows. One, the fact that our troops uh, in northern Syria and the forces that they, rep- that they backed controlled essentially a third of the country, including uh, strategic oil and gas resources in the, uh, along the Euphrates and the mid-Euphrates River Valley. Two, we had uh, you know, support to the opposition, uh, the armed opposition against uh, Assad. Three, uh, we knew that Assad, the Russians, and the Iranians couldn't rebuild the whole country, uh, which meant that the only way in which they could get the money to rebuild Syria would be to sign up to some set of conditions that the United States, the Europeans, the United Nations, and other, and other wealthy donors uh, uh, could abide by. And that we, in general, had leverage due to the fact that as Syria transitioned from a civil war to a potential hotbed for a conflict between, you know, Iran and 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 Israel, or between Turkey and and uh, other other parties, that we had an honest broker role to play. So those were all parts of leverage. Uh, it wouldn't have been enough to get Assad out, but it might have been enough uh, to shape a political outcome um, and to bring some money to bear on reconstruction uh, to help address some of the things that might otherwise let the Islamic State bounce back. The problem is. Trump, you know, he, he fancies himself the world's best negotiator, except he has systematically given away every ounce of leverage we might have had in the conflict. Very early, you know, early on, he signaled that he wanted to get out of Syria as much as fast as possible. Uh, and the, the most recent statements just reinforce that notion, giving up whatever leverage we had uh, by essentially owning territory in the north of the country. Uh, he's shown zero interest in uh, you know, nation building or stabilization assistance. And I, I'm not for us rebuilding Syria either, but we have to put some skin in the game if we're going to be able to create a pot of money internationally to rebuild those areas that were destroyed during the counter-ISIS campaign and to use its leverage uh, with Assad. He's essentially deferred diplomacy uh, in Syria completely to, to the Russians, Iranians, and Turks. Uh, and we're not playing an active diplomatic role uh, in the region beyond giving kind of Israel a green light to continue to strike targets, uh, Iranian targets inside of Syria. So my biggest critique is not necessarily that we're leaving Syria, but that there appears to be no other aspect of our policy that's designed to limit the, the possibility that we might have to go back, uh, you know, two years from now, five years from now, 
um, as the Islamic State comes roaring back. And that's, of course, that was essentially the judgment of the intelligence community that we were talking about earlier. Okay, so one of the other, you know, uh, major achievements of the Obama administration was the Iran nuclear deal. Um, And, of course, one of the first priorities of the Trump administration was pulling out of that deal. But it seems that that's not quite enough for them. And uh, they have uh, rattled sabers and drawn closer to the Saudis, despite the Khashoggi incident, despite the horrors of Yemen. Um, And uh, they've done this with the encouragement of the Israelis. Um, And it looks to me like, you know, we could be in a situation where tensions with Iran ratchet up during the next couple of years. Does it look to you like they're teeing that up? And and are are you worried that this is one of, you know, the top tier flashpoints uh, that perhaps a under pressure Trump administration might uh, turn to, if not exactly in a wag the dog scenario, then at least in a uh, scenario where they're um, uh, sort of playing along a theme that that might also happen to prove a distraction. Yeah, I, I do think it's something I, I, I worry about. I, I'm a little torn here because I think all else being equal, I don't actually think Trump wants another big war in the Middle East. I mean, he talks tough, uh, but I don't think he wants a, another war in the Middle East. I do think there are some in his orbit uh, who would be more comfortable with having a military confrontation with Iran. I would certainly put John Bolton in that category. Uh, Mike Pompeo probably also fits in that category. And some of the voices for restraint, uh, such as Jim Mattis, um, you know, it's, it's ironic, of course, that Jim Mattis, a noted Iran hawk, was a voice of reason on Iran uh, in the in the Trump administration. But that's the role that he played. Um, so I think I think the administration itself is a split a split mind on the value of a military confrontation uh, with Iran. Um, a pathway to possible war. I think I think you could identify three. One is that Iran pulls out of the uh, nuclear deal because they're not getting enough economic benefit from it um, with, with U.S. sanctions. They restart their nuclear program, and that creates a kind of spiral of U.S. and Israeli military threats uh, to bomb the program with Iranian nuclear advances, and you kind of get back into the situation we were during the first term of the Obama administration where war with Iran launched by the United States or even more likely Israel was a very real possibility. Um, I think that scenario is probably not terribly likely because I think the Iranians are willing to muddle through uh, the next two years and try to see if Trump loses in 2020. Um, I think Iran is enjoying the fact that geopolitically uh, Trump's withdrawal from the from the Iran nuclear deal isolated Washington and not Tehran, uh, that the Europeans, you know, number one goal on Iran policy right now is to try to circumvent U.S. foreign policy as opposed to work with Washington to contain uh, Iran. Um, and obviously the Russians and the Chinese and other international actors are also happy to try to keep Iran afloat. So I think Iran is hurting economically, but they've, they've been through tougher economic times before and are probably likely to try to just grit it out uh, for the next two years and not uh, pull, do anything provocative on the nuclear front. I do think there is the possibility that, uh, you know, the administration could create or manufacture a crisis in a kind of wag the dog scenario, certainly as we get closer to 2020 or as the Mueller report comes out or uh, congressional investigations strike closer to home uh, with Trump. Um, but I, I don't know how, how, how likely that scenario uh, is, and I try to not be too conspiratorial on that vein. The thing I worry about the most is just that tensions right now are really high with Iran, um, and that something bad could just happen that then uh, at a kind of low level, 
that spirals into a crisis. And I can just give you a couple of examples. I mean, essentially, what Trump's strategy towards Iran is, it has two pillars. One is maximum U.S. sanctions to try to blackmail the world into not doing business with Iran. And then telling the Israelis and the Saudis and the Emiratis, go get them, guys. Uh, you know, green lighting the Israelis to do as many strikes as they want in Syria, uh, uh, not doing very much to, to control escalation uh, with the Saudi coalition in Yemen, uh, and essentially giving the green light uh, to our traditional allies in the region to push back on Iran militarily as muscularly as they see fit. And I think that just sets up a scenario in which, you know, the Israelis carry out attacks in Syria that kill uh, on purpose or inadvertently a very, you know, a very senior Iranian official or Iranian military officer. And suddenly you have a massive uh, two-front war where Iranian, where the Iranians and Hezbollah are launching rockets from southern Syria and southern Lebanon into Israel. And Israel is, is uh, involved in a, in a major two-front campaign uh, there. And that, I think, would generate enormous political pressure uh, for um, for Trump to weigh in uh, and to intervene on Israel's behalf. And certainly folks like Bolton would take this as an opportunity to realize their dream of going all in against uh, the Iranians. Or maybe you have an incident uh, between Iranian naval vessels and American naval vessels. Uh, you know, it could be the Bab al-Mandab Straits in, uh, near Yemen, or it could be the Strait of Hormuz in the, in the Persian Gulf, um, uh, or it could be elsewhere. Uh, you could have a situation in which as American forces withdraw from Syria or as they reposition themselves in Iraq, where the president said their job will be to keep an eye on Iran, they have a dust-up with Iranian-backed militia groups that leads to deaths on both sides, which spirals into a conflict. And I think it's that scenario that, that worries me the most, that you get a kind of relatively low-level incident or something that in, either engages Trump's manhood or engages his domestic politics uh, uh, in, in, because of the nature of the Israeli relationship, et cetera, in a manner that, that uh, leads to a military confrontation. So that would be uh, the thing I would watch the most. Uh, yeah, of course, there are other complications that could come into this picture. Uh, I just did an interview with Adam Schiff for this same show, uh, and he was talking about his new investigation. One of the focuses of the investigation is going to be foreign financial flows that might have compromised the president. Uh, and it seems like the Saudis in particular, but also some Emiratis, some other Gulf folks, really decided they were going to throw in heavy with Trump. Uh, and it seems like these investigations are going to reveal a, a bunch of that, and it's going to complicate already complicated relationships um, because there's going to be a sense of 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 corruption, and it's also going to you know make things like Trump's defense of uh, MBS and the Khashoggi murder and so forth fall under more scrutiny, and the uh, the, uh, the 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 Iran position as well. And I'm just wondering, do you think some of these Gulf countries may have flown too close to the flame of Trump and this may actually have a, a regional consequence or is this just a passing political issue? Well, I think I, I think there's a lot we still don't know, but the but the early indicators suggest that yeah, they may have fallen a bit too close to the to the flame. I think you saw as we got closer to the 2016 election, late summer, early fall of 2016, a lot of eagerness uh, from uh, uh, from the Saudis, from the Emiratis, um, but also you know some people in their orbit um, uh, who also intersected with. Uh, the the Trump orbit, people like Eric Prince and and other opportunists, uh, 
to, in, in essence, try to approach the Trump administration, uh, or the, I should say the Trump campaign, um, uh, as we were approaching the election, to try to get closer and closer to them. Um, now, whether that ultimately uh, crossed the line into something inappropriate, I guess we'll, I guess we'll have to see. I think where, where you're likely to see a lot of uh, shady things happening was essentially during the period of a transition. I think that when not just the Saudis and the Emiratis, but also the, the Qataris, uh, when they looked at the incoming Trump administration, they saw a lot of they saw a lot to recognize in them. Essentially, this was a businessman uh, uh, who uh, you know essentially ran a family business and did so in a way that that. Uh, suggested you could invest in that person and that person's family or that person's business and curry favor, uh, which is much of the way, by the way, that politics is done uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, we, we call it corruption here. Um, it's, it's, and it may be corruption technically everywhere, but it's also normal politics for a lot of these states. So I think that, you know, this is, I, I suspect, why prosecutors are looking into foreign donations to uh, the inaugural can, um, committee. Uh, Trump's inaugural committee. I, I suspect that um, Adam Schiff's committee will focus a lot on that and others. But I do think that the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Qataris were competing for to find favor with the Trump transition team in very aggressive ways. And you know whether money changed hands in inappropriate or illegal ways, I think is something to be determined. But it would not surprise me at all if a non-trivial portion of the Mueller report, whenever it's announced, not only talks about uh, Russian meddling and and, uh, and and shenanigans there, but also focuses on um, the Gulf states. The Netanyahu government, um, they, they love the Trump administration. You, you probably saw the images of Prime Minister Netanyahu putting, you know, these huge billboards in Jerusalem and, and Tel Aviv plastered on the sides of buildings of him gripping, grinning with, with, uh, with Trump. Um, while the, while the, there's been, you know, an extraordinary embrace by the current Israeli government and Trump, I think in a, in a way that, that, that smacks a lot of people as, as quite brazen partisanship. Um, I, I think that there's a buffer in the case of Israel because of the deep well of bipartisan support there is for Israel uh, in the U.S. Congress and, and among um, much of the American electorate. I don't think that the Gulf states, uh, the, the conservative Gulf monarchies, have the same reservoir of support, either in Congress or among the American public. In fact, I would argue that, that if anything, the Khashoggi murder uh, and the scandal that, that arose around that um, was an indication of how much there is a degree of kind of distrust and suspicion of the Saudis and others just below the surface that can kind of easily rear its head under certain circumstances. So if it turns out that, the, that some of the Gulf states did uh, cross, cross some lines, political lines, legal lines, uh, to help Trump in any way uh, or, or to engage in corruption with the Trump administration, I think it's something that could be quite costly for our relationship with those countries. Yeah, and of course, Yemen doesn't help. And I think there's a growing view within the Democratic majority in the House and with a number of the folks who may be running for president on the Democratic side uh, that uh, we've been a little bit too enabling in that regard. Uh, maybe when I offer a brief comment on that, we're going to have to wrap up and Five minutes, yeah. but I mean, no, no question, no question. I mean, you've already you've already seen you know a resolution passed in the Senate, essentially calling for uh, uh, U.S. assistance to the Saudi coalition in Yemen to be cut off. Um, I mentioned that intelligence document earlier, the worldwide threat assessment. There is actually a section on Yemen um, that uh, focuses on the on on what a grave humanitarian emergency it is, 
and it puts some blame on both sides, but it essentially says that if Yemen, uh, that if, you know, if the, if the Saudis and the Emiratis don't dial back their activities and they continue to escalate in Yemen, you're likely to see, you know, a humanitarian catastrophe that could put millions and millions of lives uh, at risk. So that's just yet another area where the intelligence community was essentially saying, yeah, there's blame to go around. The Iranians are meddling. The Houthis are not good actors. But when it comes to the humanitarian urgency, the onus is really on the Saudi-led coalition uh, to uh, to try to de-escalate things. And and uh, I think a lot of people in Congress are mindful of that. Uh, as I said, there's only a couple minutes left before we, we go. Uh, I was wondering, what's the status of the the, the element of all of these kind of uh, Trump plots and so forth that, that touched you and your family. I recall there was a uh, uh, an instance where there was an Israeli firm and that they were trying to dig up dirt on you and another member of the Obama team. And, and that sort of faded from the public view. I was wondering if there had been any progress on it. Uh, so not, not a lot of progress. It'll be interesting to see if this is an issue that it ultimately gets taken up for oversight by the, by the Democratic House. Um, they obviously have a lot of things on their plate. Um, but just for your listeners who are completely up to speed, there's this uh, controversial Israeli uh, private intelligence firm called Black Cube uh, that employs a lot of former uh, Mossad uh, and Shin Bet um, agents. And they essentially are a corporate intelligence entity that digs up dirt for corporations to use in negotiations, some would call it blackmail, uh, and litigation. Um, and uh, there were some revelations by journalists uh, several months ago that in the spring of 2017, somebody had hired to dig up dirt on me uh, and Ben Rhodes uh, and potentially some other uh, senior Obama officials who had been involved in one way or another in the Iran nuclear deal, especially in defending it publicly. Um, and there were assertions made uh, early on that whoever hired them had connections to uh, to Trump world. Now, I, I think we, we don't have any evidence that Trump aides directly hired these folks. I do think we have some circumstantial evidence that people kind of in the wider Trump orbit may have been behind hiring a foreign firm to spy on uh, f- former officials. But um, as of now, the, I think the investigation is pretty stalled unless uh, Congress uh, takes up the mantle. Uh, but I hope they do. Don't you think that you're a little bit too boring and nerdy to be the subject of this kind of an investigation? I mean, why would, am, you know? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I'm boring, nerdy, and anybody, the most hilarious thing is that essentially I've never made any money in my life because I've either been, <laughs> I've either been a college professor or I've been a public servant, and anybody who knows what those folks get paid, uh, uh, it's not very much. So the notion that I would be involved in some kind of grand corruption scheme with the Iranians or something that could be used as dirt and to embarrass me or whatever, anyway, it's laughable. Uh, but nevertheless, um, yes, I'm boring. And also, I mean, the, the, the reality is I'm just not very important. And of all the people to kind of go after on the Iran deal, I mean, I was a vocal proponent of it. I, I remain a vocal proponent of it. But, you know, I was pretty low on the totem pole, uh, in terms of the decision makers in the Obama administration actually responsible for the deal. So there's not a lot of it to, about it that makes sense, um, and which is why I kind of think that, that Ben Rhodes and I were targeted, not as an effort to bring down the Iran deal per se, but because I think that there may have been some folks around the president's orbit, either in the administration or just one or two rings on the outside, who were convinced uh, that Ben uh, and I were responsible for coordinating you know, opposition among the deep state and all these leaks to the media 
and all of these other things that sound completely crazy, except that we know from reporting done by Adam Intos and others were precisely the type of conspiracy fever dreams that, um, you know, some members of the National Security Council staff and, and some others uh, believed in. So anyway, it's all completely bananas, um, but just make it, you know, issue item number 5,943 that is totally batshit insane about the Trump administration. Um, yeah, no, it's certainly that. But I know that anybody who has either listened to you uh, with us in the past, listened to you elsewhere, or listened to you on this podcast, know that you're anything uh, but boring. You're one of the most thoughtful observers of all of this that I know. And I could go on and on and on. But we do try to keep these things to about 40 minutes. Uh, and so I just hope you'll come back sometime soon and we can talk about the upcoming election and the future of foreign policy for the Democratic Party and the rest of the world, because we didn't really get to that. But I, I, I want to thank you and, uh, 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 I, you know, just encourage you to come back our way sometime when you have a moment. Yeah, it was fun. Anytime. All right. Thanks a lot, Colin. Uh, and that's it for... Uh, this edition of National Security Magazine. Uh, if you want to listen to past editions, you want to listen to Deep State Radio, you want to listen to Washington for Beautiful People, you want to get our daily brief, you want to get our weekly technology brief, uh, go to deepstateradionetwork.com. We're growing rapidly. You could go there. You could join up. You could go to the swag store. You can help us continue with this growth. Uh, and we look forward to uh, you joining us again in the future. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.